So welcome everyone to a new sort of podcast and we're talking about we're talking about conversations that really matter and so you are here with the the usual suspects of Jim McNeish and Kirsty Mack and we are we thought we would start a dialogue about a dialogue and we're gonna take some really big topics and and have a conversation about how do we talk about and the first one that we're going to talk about is how do we talk about COVID? And COVID seems to be a cup hook for so many things, you know, in terms of our thoughts about how we hold our own health and who has the power of that. It talks about our own experiences of it, our feelings of essential and non-essential um, and how we've navigated through it. And we've all had different experiences of the pandemic. Um, it's affected us personally, business-wise, whatever that might be. And it brings up a lot of conversation. And so the usual suspects are here, but we also have a posse. Um, and what we're going to do with these podcasts is that we're bringing along dear friends to join in the conversation and to work out what are the conversations that we need to have. And so I have a posse of Kenny, Dawn, Scott, Lindsay, Jimmy and Stephen um, are joining myself and Jim. But what we're going to do is get them having a wee conversation first. And one of the questions that we're going to ask of everyone is, what's been your relationship to COVID so far? And we're just going to go around. We would love to say that we're sitting at a table and Jim and I are filling you up with coffee and tea and giving you sweetmeats, but I'm just <laughs> going to go around a screen and point yeah. at random people. Um, but it feels like we've got a wee table setting for sure. Um, so the first person that I'm going to go to, um, and just to, by way of introduction, and also just say what's been your relationship to COVID so far, um, First person next to me is Kenny. Hi, Kirsty. Thanks for inviting me onto your podcast. Um, my name's Kenny, and my relationship with COVID so far is that it hasn't personally affected my life that much. In fact, I've actually had one of the best years I've had in many years from a work perspective and a health perspective. But I am aware of friends that have suffered long COVID, and I have friends that who have colleagues on the front line that have actually passed away as a result of COVID. But on a personal basis, it's there's quite a disparity between the life I've lived for the last year and what's actually been reported in the media. So I'm really interested to hear from what other people's experiences have been, especially those that have actually come face to face with it. Thank you. Thank you. One of the topics we'll talk about. Thanks so much, Kenny. Um, and the next person on my screen is Don. Hi there, it's a pleasure to be here today. Um, my relationship to COVID has been kind of twofold. So I've had friends that have uh, unfortunately lost their lives due to COVID. Um, and also it's affecting my work. So last year, the day job that I was doing, um, I got made redundant from that. And also with the other project that I'm working on, this kindness project, we also suffered a, a loss of business because um, we were due to, um, do a kindness initiatives and concerts and outdoor events last year and of course all of that was cancelled. Thank you Tom, thank you and again we'll talk about that too, thank you so much. And next on my screen is Scott. Hello, thank you for having me along. Um, my relationship to Covid has been a bit of a corona poster, <laughs> starting in <laughs> March with 
Um, fear actually in isolation and um, I would probably be as grand to see a bit of selfishness with it thinking how does this affect me and how does this affect my immediate and close contacts um, to moving through to a phase of experimentation and probably to the current period of actually planning what next and where next and where might you take somewhere so I've probably had a a complete emotional roller coaster actually the last 12 months from all of those different emotions that I've experienced. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Um, and next on my screen is Lindsay. Hello, thank you for having me along. Um, yeah, my relationship to COVID um, has been quite interesting. It's just felt like a bit of a, a journey. I was pregnant um, last year when um, COVID arrived and then spent the rest of my pregnancy um, homeschooling my two boys who are seven and nine, um, going to all the hospital and medical appointments on my own. My husband wasn't allowed to come into any of them. Um, I went into hospital on my own, got induced, was there for a couple of days before he was then allowed in, um, just before I went into labour. And then we had about an hour together uh, with our newborn, Aria, um, and then he had to leave again. So then it was just me and Aria learning how to um, yeah, do life in a pandemic. It was really weird. Um, so I think that's quite quite um, an interesting year. Aria is an absolute delight, but it's been such a shame not being able to share her with friends and family in the way that you normally would. Hardly anybody's um, out with her parents and siblings have actually got a chance to meet her yet. Um, and she's nine months now. Um, wow. And I think then having to homeschool the boys during the most recent lockdown is quite challenging doing that with a, a, a newborn. <laughs> um, we also lost my granny to COVID. Um, she was in a care home down in London and um, it, it spread around the care home. And within a few hours of her positive test, she actually passed away. So again, that was quite a difficult dynamic because um, there was all the complications around can we travel for the funeral and um you know with a, a newborn I wasn't able to actually attend physically which was quite difficult um you know I was able to to join online but yeah so my relationship with COVID has been quite a quite an interesting one I've been a bit mad at it to be honest <laughs> yeah very good thank you Lindsay and such a roller coaster and I just want to give Aria a hug as well <laughs> for sure and next on my screen is Jimmy yeah. Hi, uh, Jim Kirsty, guys. Thanks for having us on. Brilliant, brilliant to see you all. Yeah, in a nutshell, my um, experience with COVID was uh, Christmas uh, Eve in the hospital being told that I had one hour to make a decision because my lungs and uh, chest were shot, or goose, whatever you prefer. And um, the choice was to read a, a word of notes this day basically sign your life over to Oxford University experiment. And um, it gets worse because actually it's not even Oxford University, it's literally a dice in their computer. So they roll a dice and they decide which one of the, which three of the six experimental drugs you get for seven days. They barbecue you for seven days. And uh, the, one, the first one they chose was the Donald Trump drug. And so I've been talking a lot more rubbish than ever since then. But anyway, that's my relationship. My wife is at home cooking a Christmas dinner because she had COVID. 
and I was in the hospital. But I've got a weird system that the more danger I face, something kicks in, the more excited I get. And I don't understand that. But anyway, so it was scary, yet, yet in many ways brilliant. And I'm not Bill Dustin when I say that. Anyway, that's it. Thanks. Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you for being here. Um, and lastly, but certainly not leastly, um, next is Stephen. Hello, and thanks again to having uh, me on here with everybody. Um, so similar in some ways, I feel like my experience or relationship with COVID has been multifaceted in the sense of massive disruption. I lead a church, so within a week we had to figure out how to do church very, very differently, which was um, actually quite fun, to be honest. The staff team have kind of just thought, you know, there's a wee bit of rescued from the same monotony of the same old, same old. And as stressful as it was at points, it was fun, but um, but it's had its drag too as the, the year and more has gone on. My wife's a GP, so at the start, she was working a bit in the COVID hubs here in Glasgow. So I remember the start where we were washing our hands so much, our hands were like raw, bleeding and just sore. Um, and, you know, it was uh, the heightened fear at the start. And when we had the scenes of Italy and we were trying to guess or compare how bad it's going to get here and all that uncertainty. Um, homeschool as well is a massive part of the journey. And um our, our our relationships became very refined or focused and local which was actually in some ways a blessing to be honest because some ways I'm in a job that doesn't put boundaries on relationships as easy and just to have right here's all you can do is actually quite life-giving because um so that was that's been brilliant to have really local um support um from our literally people on the street. And then more personally, again, would be seeing my, it got a bit close to my brother-in-law, got a wee bit sick with COVID, needed quite a lot of support in hospital. And we were quite worried at some points more recently. And I guess that was our first insight into the, the stories you hear of people, like my sister dropped him off at the hospital. He didn't even say goodbye. He just walked in and that she was like left with, is that last time everyone's safe? And thankfully it wasn't, but it was a, a snapshot of, or, you know, peering in that door of what some people have experienced in their aloneness in this. So um, to now just dealing week, week at a time and seeing what's what, trying not get too up or down about moving goalposts and just staying um, present to the moment is how the current mode is. So, yeah, multifaceted. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. And yeah, everyone's talking about the emotions and the highs and the lows and the roller coaster. Um, and thank you all for being here. I love that. Thank you for having me. I love, is, that, is that a Scottish thing? I'm not sure. Is that? I love it. Um, and Jim, what about you? Yeah. Um, very um, personally, I mean, Jimmy, I guess, is the closest I have came to kind of having anything that really scared or worried me during COVID from uh, people who I know. Um, we were kind of tracking Jimmy through hospital because there was times where he definitely had, say, face death, death in the face and, and had his own kind of ways through it. Um, but actually, for me personally, family-wise, all that stuff, nobody really affected. Um, some of my team caught it kind of early on, but they were either asymptomatic or very, very light. Um, so uh, the business was affected, but that feels minimum. Um, and, and it sorted itself, um, but actually 
very untouched by it. And again, one of the main concerns has been it's been a terrific year for me and for, for us kind of in my little group. And um, do you talk about that or not? You know, do you talk about it or not? What about you, Kirsty? I think same. I think um, I'm feeling immense hope, even just in the conversations that I've heard here, just in, in hearing where we have been and where we could get to. And, and I had the experience in Kenny saying, it was so lovely to see Kenny popping up and he's like, hey, how are you? And I went, really good. And then I had a gremlin that went, should you say that? You know, should you actually say that things have been good? And even to hear from Jimmy in terms of that experience of, of the, of how bad it was, and also how brilliant that was, and the paradox that that is. Um, so yeah, and you know, we've spoken about the impact on business, but yeah, very lucky, very privileged, very blessed, um, would be my thing. So given, thanks, Kirsty. Given the conversations we've just heard from one another. Um, what would you say to people who have anti-vaccination views um, because they're either suspicious of it or they, they don't trust the medical information? Um, what would you want to say to them about their impact on the pandemic um, and our release from lockdown um, if you're in a conversation? Sadly, we couldn't get anybody from that group to come on. We tried from social media and others just so that we could give a sort of respectful, balanced view. We, do, we don't have it, but um, I do know people who are saying, no, I don't want the vaccine. I don't trust it yet. I don't think it's gone through enough stuff or there is a surreptitious kind of agenda with it. Um, but what would you say to them? What do you want to say to them about their impact on the pandemic and the release from lockdown? Anybody? I'll, I'll do a little bit of kind of thinking and homework on this and prep for this. So I'll, I'll go first if, if that's okay with everybody. Um, I think before I jumped into what I would say to somebody just right out the gate, I'd have a little bit of a think about what's their motivations and agenda behind that. Um, so because if, if we look at some of the similarities of whether it's for anti-vaxxing or or, or pro-gun or pro-smoking or whatever, there does seem to be this element of freedom of choice. So I'm aware that from some of the uh, information I got on, via Google yesterday that it's not necessarily that they're opposed to the vaccine, they're actually opposed to somebody um, having their choice taken away, taken away from them. Um, or is it something to do where they've got a say we come to the likes of social restrictions where we couldn't socialise and people getting upset about that. Um, is that to do with they've got a very safe and comfortable routine that's been disrupted and they don't know what that's going to be replaced with yet? Um, so I, th I think there's a step before we actually bestowing our wisdom on, on everybody else who's actually trying to understand what the root cause of their um, thinking actually is. Because otherwise, I think we're just moving forward with assumptions and it doesn't matter whether you lay down the scientific facts around how vaccines work and how a virus works or um, and, and, and combat that with facts until you actually understand what their belief system is that's that's underneath all of that. Um, so so I, I, it made it very difficult for me to actually think about what would I actually say without that little bit of context or an example from somebody. So I, I don't know if someone can, can pick, up, um, pick up from there. 
I, I would definitely be in agreement with that, that I think you need to kind of listen to where they're coming from for us, because I, I think in addition, people have been able to link their opinions to their identity and they hold on fast to that. And when they have this feeling that you are trying to force them to do something, they feel that their identity is being at risk and who they are is personally that uh, for people that I've met in my social circle and my family that have been kind of anti-vaxxer uh, or vaccination, um, just telling them a story of somebody that they can identify as being similar to in their same demographic age or even similar mindset that has taken the vaccine and has had no issues or even addressing their own concerns to say like, you know, I was a bit worried at first, but I took it, but I feel fine now. Or, you know, I had a, a bit of a fever afterwards and everything is okay. I found this really helped that person to kind of say, hmm, question mark, you know, maybe I would be open to consider this moving forward. And I think that is a step in the right direction that you're not gonna get a yes or a change, you know, a kind of road to Damascus change overnight that it is these small steps, that if you can make them have a kind of question mark to say, what is it that I believe in? Where are my concerns coming from? Then I think that's a step in the right direction. It is a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, I don't mind bestowing my wisdom upon people. I think everyone should just get it. <laughs> Obviously we don't want to force people into doing things they're not comfortable with, but I think one of the like the main considerations is the fact that once you've got the vaccine, you've got a certain level of protection. And so, like I've had the first part of the vaccine, I'm a registered carer for my son who's got a medical condition, and um, the relief and the freedom that I actually personally felt after getting the first part of it was immense and quite unexpected. And it's interesting because having spoken to some people who are quite anti-vaccine, um, I think at the end of the day, it comes down to the main impact is going to be on them as individuals. I think if the majority of people are moving towards getting the vaccine, then there's almost like it's up to each person whether they want to take responsibility for their own health in that way. But also, I think it almost feels like more of a collective health decision as well. So it's not like I would go and get the flu jab to protect myself from catching flu, whereas the COVID vaccine feels like a, a much wider um global decision or community decision that you almost make on behalf of yourself but i think also on behalf of your friends and your family in order to keep, like protect them as much as possible i would um i would say to someone science wins would be my cold answer because as a type one diabetic i wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation with you if i didn't trust science um and that's the lens by which i've I've looked through it that um, it's something that's that's that keeps me alive every single day of my life, that without it then I wouldn't have got past age 21. So I've got a, a large amount of trust in science and I do hear a lot of anti-vaccination arguments about pace, about how quickly something's came to market. Um, and I also hear a lot of stuff at the moment around certain vaccinations and their potential risks associated to them. Um, and I'll also speak into that to say that um, the fact that we know about those risks and the fact we're hearing about blood clots shows us that there is actually some real, you know, um, healthy debate going on 
and the fact that, that you actually know about that shows that the drug companies are doing the right things and actually the the um the research that goes around it is current and the fact that we do know about them i'd be more worried if we didn't know about blood clots i'd be more worried if we didn't know about side effects but the fact that we do know about them shows that there's healthy reporting that's going on into it. so for me that's a good argument into an anti-vaccination argument um and i also do wonder whether some people as kenny said are anti this vaccination rather than anti-vaccination in general The question I'd ask, I guess, maybe then in the group on that is when you've got people like Scott and Lindsay who are either uh, dealing with um, type 1 diabetes or their primary caregiver for it, and they're actually having to kind of make these tough decisions, should those of us who don't have uh, those illnesses and aren't as vulnerable be speaking up a lot more and in a way that's less reasonable? about other people's views on behalf of science and behalf of what feels like a kind of joint kind of research-based insight to start to, um, if you like, coerce and push people down a route to start taking the vaccine because it will be affected. Because if we don't, does it then mean that if somebody like Scott or Lindsay then speaks up on behalf of they think they should take it, they then get boxed into whether they're just representing their own viewpoint, they're representing their own agenda? Does it take more of a general population to then start to say, actually, it's not okay anymore to not be scientific in your thinking on this? And actually, you need to take the vaccine because of its impact wider on the world, because that's our best scientific information. Should there be more assertion? And should there be more coercion of those folks in that way? Um, I think in a simple answer to that, Jim, is yes. <laughs> um, I think when, when we look at the bigger picture um, and when we know how herd immunity works and you get that to the likes of, what, 70 to 90%, that, that creates enough of a gap between those at risk um, to reduce the risk of them even contracting it. Um, but then if we look at the people that are maybe more um, or, or still holding out against that, if, if we come back round to this freedom of choice element and how that might be impacted by this notion of a, a vaccine passport, um, you might end up in a situation. So that's that's fine if somebody doesn't want to take the vaccine. I've got no problem with that. That's That's their freedom of choice to make that decision. But if I'm a patron of an establishment that has to um, consider duty of care of my staff and my patrons, then I also have the freedom of choice to exclude that person from entering my premises. So that's one of the consequences to me of somebody that's the anti-vaccination that can actually very significantly affect them on a day-to-day -day basis that say, that's fine, you've made your freedom of choice, but you're also then opting out of, of access to all of these other things in society, which might include just going to your local pub for a drink because you're now no longer allowed to get in the door. Um, so I think I think that's so that I think taking the big picture, that's one way of bringing it to them in a very personal and very practical way, and um, regardless of whether they buy into the science or not, this is a very real day-to-day um, -day impact of you may be excluded from all these opportunities in your life and your family and, and everyone else around you. But if you're okay with that and you don't want to take the vaccine, that's fine, but you don't get to cry about it anymore. 
you've made your choice and, and I'm, I'm free to make my choice. Is there an aspect of that's about restriction of trade for some people? So if you're a musician and you normally play festivals every summer and you're suddenly told you can't go into that festival lineup unless you have a vaccination by your anti-vaccination, I wonder what the position is on that from somebody who has to earn their living through those festivals. If all of those festivals have that same vaccination mandate before you're allowed to play, it then has an impact on on trade. And I know that's speaking from an anti-vaccination position, which I'm not, but I do think it's quite interesting to think about it from somebody whose the livelihood re relies on crowds and the livelihood re relies on doing live gigs, but they themselves can't do those gigs because they're personally refusing to take a vaccination to enable them to do it. I wonder how I would feel if I was a live musician and, and I was anti-vaccination about how that would sit with me, how it would rest with me. I know that's interesting. I do wonder if we were to introduce some other conditions like, okay, you've you know decided you're not going to take the vaccine, but in that case, you're going to have to fund your own COVID tests so that if you want access to particular events or venues, you have to actually take responsibility and pay for your own testing if you've chosen not to get the vaccine. Because there's then that whole question of like, well, who keeps funding all of these tests for people if they've actually turned down the opportunity to get vaccinated against COVID? I also am wondering about um, who we, like the, the people who have conditions that, you know, maybe don't allow them to get the vaccine there's plenty of those and i guess my only hesitation about speaking up on behalf of science is is, is competency if we're competent to speak on behalf of science great if we're not then my fear is kind of whenever it's kind of the equivalent whenever the government start telling you what to do with medical decisions I, I do get a bit nervous because at the end of the day if i'm on a medical decision i want a doctor telling me what to do and it's my understanding of some of the success to the vaccination program has been because it's been NHS led up um, is my understanding of them. It could be wrong in that. Um, you know, so it's, I, I think there's a place for um, sharing opinions for sure, but I don't know. I, I feel nervous about speaking up for science for if, if we're not qualified to speak up for science, because I think we could do more harm than good. Um, so I, there's a, I would have been more, I, I, and I, I say that I'm very pro-vaccination, um, albeit I'm a 39-year-old and I've got this weird scenario now where this boxer jab has a slight question mark for the, you know, under 30 is fine, but, you know, what about me? So my opinion changed literally in the last 24 hours in terms of the, I don't know, the ferocity I would have spoken out against anti-vaxxers, but um, I, I just think I've got a question on who I would want to listen to for what particular advice, and I'm not sure the government is always who I'd want to listen to in terms of advice for, for medicine. At the end of the day, I want decisions from NHS and GPs and medical people giving advice, um, and that's what I'd pick rather than you know a, a trust of politicians, which I must admit find hard. Interesting that trust is coming up and and I suppose, especially from a government perspective. So how could I suppose it's it's how much should the government influence our social patterns and, and does it then get into a space of over compliance? 
you know, we're talking about if you if you want to go to a concert, you have to do this. If you want to open up your doors, you have to do this. Where does the compliance end? Hmm. I think before I, I get into the compliance thing, um, back to, you know, what would you say to somebody? I think that um, with the greatest, highest respect, I would basically just be asking simple questions to find out. Because most people are operating one of two emotions. I honestly believe most people have really got two emotions, fear and love. And then, and fear is massive. You know, the people are strong against us. You know, the amount of fear is unbelievable. And so I would go for that to address the fear issue rather than, you know, all the science issues, which there are many. And, uh, and so, and the way I would I, I, I go after the fear is, I mean, the whole thing about encouragement, it goes a long way. And so I would try to find the biggest dose of uh, encouragement and aim it directly at the person's greatest fear. And the only way I would do that is by just sharing my experience and, um, you know, and leave it at that because my two sons are pharmacists and the most I've ever bought out of their shop is a hairbrush. I'm so, so, um, you know, distant from any kind of medicine, but when you're told you've got another to live, something changes a wee bit. And so you just kick it in another gear and you're no longer thinking about my opinion, you're now thinking of, hey, how would my kids and grandkids see this today? They, would, they wouldn't mind seeing me, most of them, for another day. So everything changes. So, yeah, I would just be loving and, and highly respectful to anybody's opinion, but I would try to get to the root fear that's driving the thing, in most cases. So that's just anyway. I, I think, kind of coming back to kind of Kirsty's question as well in the group is is that idea of um should the government actually be allowed to take a stronger hand and actually say this is the science this is the stats those countries that are fast on vaccination are fast on diminishing it and those countries that aren't doing much in the way of vaccination are producing more variants in the world that most of us are then going to have to suffer for and so therefore there should be an imposition of our best rate of science to what extent is it okay for a government to intervene when it's a pandemic and an emergency and there are millions of people dying? Or to what extent do we then face a danger of giving the government too much power over our social activity? I mean, from my perspective, it really depends on how the government are handling it, handling it themselves. I think the problem that we, well, I think the problem in the UK is that you've had a government that have been, they've been, wishy-washy in in the messaging that they've given and also you know when you're seeing government officials flouting their own rules you find it hard to trust that system itself where we were at the beginning that we were all kind of pulling together we were clapping for our carers and even when um uh bojo was sick there were people holding out vigils for him and now you've got a situation where it's really a kind of clear us and them. So I think it's really been a kind of product of their sort of, um, I know that, I mean, they are in the middle of like, you know, big business is sort of, you know, 
pushing at them and also you've got the science aspect that is pushing at them so how do you really make a decision that is best for all you know to make everybody happier i i guess it's it's not it's not difficult but i really wish that they'd handled it differently and that um they did take the approach of science first or health first and then the economy second because i think we could have been through this sooner and we could get things back to normal instead of having to wait i mean <laughs> it's just crazy i mean instead of you know also just spending time like creating new slogans i mean you half kind of expect that uh, boris johnson will be next talking about i don't know control alt delete as a way of uh, getting us out of the uh, situation that we're in <laughs> I, I i do um i get worried when a government um wander into talking about science rather than passing it over to the scientific experts to talk about science and they end up having a half-assed attempt to answer a question that they've got no in-depth knowledge of and that that concerns me i do also it does also concern me about government control over so many issues that if the government told everyone they should be listening to coldplay does that mean everyone should listen to coldplay and i, I kind of wonder that they could tell you anything and you would have to then follow that route to do it and my main concern with all of that is actually about creativity and about the space to which people to make their own choices and encouraging kids when they leave school to make their own choices about what kind of careers they want to have and not discouraging those rule breakers to be mavericks and to be the next creators and the next scientists actually the next inventors that are we going to actually damage some of that for a generation by by suddenly falling into this mentality that whatever the government tells you, you must follow. And I think it's right in a sense with COVID to, to some extent, but I do worry that it overlaps into other areas of our life that post COVID, that when the government says, follow this rule, that everyone says, right, we must follow that rule. And you do end up in a, almost a kind of Orwellian state of following things rather than, you know, being comfortable at actually bending those rules and challenging things because I've been like living like a nun here for the last 12 months of keeping to my rules and sticking to postcodes and not doing those things but see the minute I'm told I can go if the government tell me that I, there's something else that's not connected to COVID will I follow it? No I probably won't but for some reason when it comes back to a COVID rule I have to almost get everything lined up to say this must be followed but not in other circumstances. And I don't have the answer about how to change that mentality, but it definitely does concern me that it becomes a way of life and a way of living. Well, actually, you are kind of seeing that with the right to protest at the moment, isn't, isn't it? You know, that people are feeling that, you know, one statement of saying, go home, do not, you know, turn up to protest on things, doesn't respect the particular issues that people are protesting on. And it could be a kind of creep of this sort of government, as you say, Orwellian, you know, uh, draconian measures on our freedoms. I think I think what's coming up here is essentially the need for nuance. Um, when we look at but a lot of the stuff that I've read in, in media, they tend to use for sensationalistic purposes very sweeping generalizations. Um, and this is, and you see it a lot with clickbait on, on YouTube with the, the best this or the best that, but nobody's actually defined what does the best mean. Like, for example, if we were to arguments over the um, the best way to get fit, well, what does that mean? Is that is that to, is best defined as something that you enjoy and are they're likely to adhere to? 
or is best defined as um, the, the scientifically proven most effective way to manipulate your biology, but might be something that you find difficult to adhere to. So coming back to Scott's point with this idea of the nuance would be in, under the box, box a set of rules round for the likes of COVID to get some level of compliance there. And then the rules would be different for other situations because it's not about it's not about following the process for the, the sake of the process. It's about does the process achieve the end in mind? Um, I had some, my head was spinning off there and I've, I've forgotten the rest of what I was about to say now because it it's just going a bit too quick. <laughs> um, yeah, so if, if somebody wants to jump in there and if it comes back, I'll throw it back into the conversation. I, I'll, I'll jump in just to um, give you that moment. But there, there is something to me which it just spun off what you're saying, Kenny, where, where I was in, in the assumption of what is best. It's there is this thing of I, I don't know how to articulate it very well, but I, if we could talk a bit more about what human flourishing is, and I think it's about if we had some sense of what we're talking about, then there might be some and some nuance on that. Then this argument of business, which is just a non-nuance, like we need to get business going again. It's almost like for what end? <laughs> like what is this flourishing that if we could just get the economy going again? that we have a shared understanding of, it feels like that's assumed without ever being articulated. And um, it's mechanistic. It doesn't have any nuance about the environment. It doesn't have any nuance about, do we want, like for those of us who don't want to get back on the treadmill and go as fast and hard and on every direction, is there anybody asking broader questions that the rebuild could, could have different aspects rather than just rebooting this mechanistic machine which plays into the distrust into people who you know the rich going richer and the poor getting poorer it's you know who wants to reboot that in a hurry i'm not so sure getting the economy going without some nuanced discussion at a philosophical level um and i don't see anybody really um in, engaging that in tandem with the, the questions it's just assumed we need to get the economy going again and yeah, I would love somebody used to tell me more about why. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me a little bit of something that Simon Sinek said about Martin Luther King talked about that I have a dream speech as opposed to the I have a plan speech, which is the one that you find a little bit more inspiring. So I think um, a, a kind of undefined plan with this notion of business. Well, it's like, do you know what? Some and this will maybe come into some of the questions later on. This is yeah, there's there's businesses that have suffered catastrophically. But like any, any any kind of rebirth of the economy or business, there's obviously going to be as 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 lifestyles change, the 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 demand from the consumers is going to move to other areas, and somebody will invent something that's going to fill that need. I mean, just look at the likes of the the technology that we are using. Zoom, I, IT has exploded in the last twelve months. Um, I remember within the first few months of um us going into lockdown, when a company that I'd been supporting for a, a few years um, was an IT managed services company and they reached a stage where it didn't matter how many more customers they took on, they had more customers than they could ever manage. What had actually happened is the hardware that people was trying to buy up of Microsoft stock from the UK was completely depleted. There was literally no more technology in the company to sell to anybody else. So there is an element of when we talk about getting business going, come back to Stephen's point, what do they mean about business? Because 
There are areas of business that are, are flourishing beyond all measure, but we're not hearing about that because I think media tends to work very well with a kind of fear-driven agenda, so they focus on all the stuff that's collapsing rather than the stuff that's kind of being built out of the ashes, so to speak. Um, and I've remembered what it was that I was going to talk about with the with the the nuance part was to do with the the trust thing. So like I'm I'm actually quite distrusting of government because of the lack of specificity and evasion of uh, direct questions and whatnot. So um, I like the idea of the nuance um, of boxing off COVID and applying different rules to achieve different ends in mind. The problem is that I don't actually trust the people that are in charge. And anybody that's a fan of Yes Minister or Yes Prime Minister um, would probably um, pick up from that, that the government's never really in charge. It's actually the civil service kind of beaving away in the background, if, if you tend to follow that. Um, just for the record, that's one of my all-time favourite comedy shows. So anyway, I've, I've, I've remembered what that was, so I've got that out now, so so we can, I can uh, if anybody wants to pick up from that. I'm conscious it's 11, so um, I'm going to keep pressing on with this because I've got loads of time in the diary, but we're also really aware if people need to somehow kind of nip out and do something else, that's cool. Um, but I, I guess what I wanted to pick up on now is there's different things coming in, including a lot of it where you stand with this, you know, like Jimmy mentioned earlier that it really sharpens the focus when you've potentially got an hour to make a decision about your own treatment and uh, whether you're going to roll the dice or not. And um, different people standing in different places. And so some people might argue that actually the business uh, thing should actually be very secondary, unless, of course, you believe that one of the greatest illnesses that is around at the moment is mental ill health, which um, the depletion of business is actually causing a number of people to be suicidal or unable to function well as a family, and that's affecting things. So again, it depends if you stand there. My question is, is what else are we not talking about that this is affected? What other things are starting to come up, whether it is about the mental ill health associated with the economy kind of breaking down is it um trust of government and where should the government stand uh, how should they um, work with medicine but but what else has covid brought up for us as a society um and we're not talking about it but actually it's incredibly pertinent and it's affecting how we are in this country i think one of the main things which i think will probably come to the forefront in the next year is mental health for young people and children um, having had two boys in primary school who for the best part of a year have been cut off from their friends from their teachers from the clubs and activities they normally go to from socializing and um, from even seeing family I think that was one of the most difficult things for us was not being able to see um, my parents for months because they live in Edinburgh and we're in Glasgow um, and I know that my boys find that really difficult. Um, and that's something that just being part of lots of different parenting networks and school networks and um, you know various kind of chat groups, that seems to be the main concern that's now coming up to the front is how kids are now adjusting going back into schools and back into that structured environment and also now being separated from their parents and separated from their home life where they've actually been used to that for the last few months for an extended period of time and during a time which has been quite um 
emotionally intensive. It's not that we were all on holiday for a few months, all hanging out and having fun. It was your as a parent has to then change to I'm your parent, but also I'm going to have to become your teacher to a point. And you're then trying to be all things to these little people who are just used to having you there as, you know, mum and dad or mum or stepdad or, you know, stepmom or whatever. Um, and I think the challenges that are going to come up already, you start to see the impact on children and how they're, they've, they've had so much. And I think it's one of the, it surprised me how little it's been covered, to be honest, and how much it's actually been spoken about in the media. I think I'm quite aware of it in the parent groups that I'm part of. But out with those, there doesn't seem to be a huge conversation going on about how to actually support kids and young people as they readjust to going back into socialising and school environment again, how they do relationships when they've actually not seen their friends for three or four months at a time, um, or when they've been used to then having to take the relationships online. Like, it actually alarms me that my nine-month-old is so familiar with the, face, the FaceTime ringer. Every time I lift up my phone to FaceTime somebody in the family and she hears, she's like, she gets really excited and starts to look and smile at the phone. And in some ways I find it lovely. And in other ways it makes me want to cry because she's so familiar with engaging with family through a screen. Yeah, I would add to the mental health thing, which is massive, the different... And I think the children thing is, is huge. Um, I think those with any form of disability is another huge under-discussed. Um, they've been impacted massively. And from a mental health point of view, are much more likely to report um, mental health problems and deterioration with COVID than, than others. Um, so I think that's going to be huge. Um, within it, the different scales of mental health problems, I think loneliness is the maybe could be the under talked about one because the extremes get rightly get a lot of attention, but there's a general loneliness that is there that I think needs to be discussed and um, because in it can get embedded so many things that just deteriorate. Um, and I think that I would want people to somehow, and I speak to myself here, but is that what is our neighborly responsibility going forward? Because there was that really sweet moment where we actually cared about the people on our street and then it passes. And I'm just curious about what have we learned anything about our neighborly responsibility to the people who actually just happen to share God's green earth with us on this postcode. Do they, does that mean anything anymore? Or is that just incidental who's on our street or who's in our block of flats? And I think there's something to explore in that. I am. Um, I've noticed a lot, uh, or rather, I've noticed a lack of attention on charity during the pandemic. And by charity, I mean fundraising for charity. Because if it was, if last year hadn't happened, how many of us might have done a fun run, or might have done a bit of exercise to raise money for someone? And uh, I know I, I did um, three virtual kindness festivals for one of those key reasons was actually to try and get money into those different charities. I mean, I was reading up on this. I read that Virgin Money's top 50 charities saw a 93% reduction in fundraising uh, one month into the pandemic. And I wonder how much that affects 
what the charities do with that money that they receive and the treatment and the care they give to people uh, into research, into different things. And if that's been, you know, cut off massively due to COVID, that's not just suddenly going to turn on like a tap again at the end of COVID and we're going to see those gaps being plugged because they've lost potentially 12 months of revenue that they would have generated through people doing um, good things for, for the right causes and the right ways. And it's not a story that I hear any coverage on in the news in terms of how much charities funding's been impacted and there's, there's different charities that I've supported and even locally in, in Glasgow, for example, um, you know, local social charities that provide support and assistance for people with disabilities or social care needs, that if all those charities have had that same level of reduction in funding in some way, because people haven't been, out, been able to do those things that involve community action, um, it concerns me greatly, actually, about the impact that has in the long-term success of those charities doing the great work that they do. That's, yeah, and also to pick up on that, one of the, the main things, I think, with the charity fundraising is, it, for a lot of people, it gives them a motivation and a focus and a drive to achieve something. Um, it gives them something to look forward to, because I th always think anticipation of an event is actually usually better and more positive for mental health than the event itself. You know, and that's interesting. Last year we were planning a fundraiser for a type one diabetes charity. My nine year old's got type one, and uh, we had to cancel the whole thing. And he was really, you know, he was gutted. Um, and so this year he's like, "Mummy, what can we do? Can, can we get?" And I'm like, "We still aren't allowed to have, you know, everybody over. We can't do like a fun day." So he actually shaved his head last week um, to raise money for, a, 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 you know, JDRF. Um, and actually the thing that I found incredible was the number of people who actually donated to the charity and the number of messages we got saying, you know, this is amazing. Charity's not been in the forefront of, our, you know, of my mind. And it was really, I mean, he's raised three and a half thousand pounds, which is, you know, for shaving his hair, which, you know, he didn't get it cut during lockdown. Um, and it's, so it's trying to turn some of the negative stuff into a positive. But I was really, really amazed. There's like 150 people have donated, um, a lot of them strangers or people that are connected in some distant way. But I think it's been lovely, just the number of messages and responses of people saying it's actually lifted their spirits, you know, to see Alexander doing this. And I think that's something that's really been lost this year, along with the charity support side of things financially is the motivation, the drive and the positive mental health aspects that um, usually come with it. Yeah. So, so would you say that it's a kind of, um, maybe it's down to marketing or storytelling that is uh, the issue to really get these issues into the forefront of our homes so that we can start donating again and we can support these charities? I kind of think it's timing, to be honest. Okay. Um, I think if we'd done this at the start of lockdown last year, I don't think we would have got the same response. I don't think people needed it as much then. Um, I don't think the charities, it's not for a lack of marketing um, or emailing or um, keeping their social medias up to date. I think those things have all, if anything, have grown and developed. To be honest, I think it's more timing. It's spring. We're coming out of lockdown. There's a vaccine. Hope is on the horizon again. And I think that's probably starting to, uh, you know, help people's mindsets 
shift into a slightly more positive place. Um, and it's interesting what um, you mentioned before, Kirsty, in terms of like when you have something positive or good going on, you almost didn't want to share it during the really dark moments of winter and COVID when there wasn't a vaccine on the horizon and everything just seemed really full of despair. Um, we didn't know what was going to happen. Um, I think having, we've now moved into a kind of a different headspace and I think it's now looking at, okay, now that we're coming out of that, how do we start to generate positivity and good news stories and mental health and communities again for people? Um, yeah, that's it. I think that's all brilliant, you know. One of the wee things that's concerning me, or one of the things should I say on a positive note, is exciting me, Jim, uh, about the question is that I, I think that what you, Kirsty, and the people are doing uh, totally excites me because I think 90% of what I'm hearing, we're still building rescue clinics at the bottom of cliffs. And I'm a massive fan of NHS and stuff, but a lot of it is still. And I think that, you know, what, what should we be doing? Uh, I'm trying to remember exactly who you put the question is that I think we should be putting a whole lot more energies into building a fence six feet from the edge of the cliff rather than building clinics at the bottom of the cliff. And I mean, all of a sudden we're all excited, people are excited about the impact of vitamin D3, for example. I've been taking vitamin D3, 5,000 international units per case all years. And the NHS and people have known about this. Everybody's known about this. But, but no one has been talking about equipping people to face whatever comes our way. And so I think we need to have a lot more of what you guys are doing in discussions about how do we equip the kids? How do we equip adults? How do we equip the elderly? That no matter what comes, they're absolutely fearless and they've got a whole wallet of, of tools in their hip pocket to face it when it comes. And, and so that's what gets me really excited about what you guys are doing. And, and I think, what you know, I hear what you're saying, Lindsay, about the mental health issue and Scott, about that the charities, one of my sons has got to raise 50 million pounds every single year just to keep his charity going. And they've been doing all right, believe it or not. They've been doing all right with challenges. But um, I'm very, very excited about investigating and exploring more tools for mental health, spiritual health, emotional health, and physical health. And, you know, seven days of Oxford University drugs did nothing for me. I still had not one breath, deep breath left in my body after seven days, and I couldn't walk five steps. But one thing it did, there is a five-minute video that um, was developed at uh, the New York epicenter of the crisis that um, where 10,000 bodies were being uh, uh, buried a day, a five-minute video that if you apply, um, you could literally spit COVID out. And I thought, ah, here we go. I tried it for three minutes, and I went from one shallow breath to three deep breaths. Beautiful deep breaths. My lungs switched on like subwoofers. Sorry I've gone on a wee bit, Jim. But I just want to get us really excited about investigating our engine time and your long-term solutions and tools, and equipping the bits of bearings, Lindsay, equipping all the wee bits of bearings to face 
whatever comes our way, fear us with the tools that um, that are available. They're there. And um, so there we go. Sorry, I'm right. No, it's, <clears throat> it's terrific. Thanks for that. And I think it's just that idea of when you've been in it, you know, when you've been in it and you knew you, you were diminishing and you knew that you had COVID was actually causing your lungs to clog up more and more. And then you do a phone call to one of your medical friends in South Africa. And the next thing he's got you posturing yourself differently on your bed. And within five minutes, your breath all comes back again and you're on healing. It's like, how do we share that information? And also, how do you balance it against non-medical people advising medical solutions like Stephen was talking about? How do we hold this? Because there is such an amount of information and there are so many different places to stand. You know, absolutely, people should have freedom of choice and we should really watch what we're doing. But maybe in COVID, we should be stricter with the rules. You know, there are these paradoxes that we're living with the whole time that we're going to have to negotiate as a society. And I guess my final question would be just a reflection on some of where you've heard people coming from today, which is how should we talk about this? Should there be a strong governmental police imposition on how societally we handle COVID? Or actually, should it still be individual choice of make your own sense of the science for yourself? Um, how should we bring in these things? Uh, mental health, should mental health be deprioritized down the list of health issues when people are fighting to try and get another breath in their lungs to actually stay physically alive? And so therefore, are people not going to engage with those things because actually it feels like there's more priority when their loved ones are, are struggling with it? these paradoxes, these tensions, and depending on what phase you're in, it's going to affect how you argue and how you present yourself and what position you take. So the final question is, is that how do we get better at having all the conversations present and doing something about it that's useful? How should we talk about COVID? I'll have a, a go first on that one. I, I think that we've learned a lot in the last 12 months that COVID does affect everyone, but it doesn't affect everyone in the same way. I think reflecting on individual circumstances is is incredibly important. Um, and that means that sometimes not every virtual learning chat has to start off with a, how are you dealing with things? <laughs> Because people have got other circumstances going on in their life, so other than COVID as well, and other things going on for them. And for other people, it's not impacted at all. Um, or they don't, they've actually had a good experience from it. I had a chat about um, six or seven months ago with a guy who's the HR director of one of the one of the world's most profitable businesses at the moment. I, I won't name them, but he said to me, privately, Scott, he says, I've loved the last three months, four months. He says, because I've had time away from the office. I've got to spend more time with my kids. I don't have to do that commute every day for two hours in my car to get to the office. He says, but don't tell anyone. <laughs> because he didn't want to admit that he'd enjoyed the experience of it. And for me, I think it's just embracing the reality of that, that it's been shockingly bad and horrible for a lot of people but not for every person because everyone's had very different experiences of it and just appreciating that it is different for everyone depending on your own situation 
it's going to affect you differently. I think following on from what Scott's just said, that's that's quite an interesting example that that's somebody that's very senior in business is trying to hide that away when surely that person in that role is somebody that's meant to be at the forefront of those things. So if they're not being honest with themselves and their people, how would they expect their people to be open and honest about what's going on in their world? So, And to me, these are the people that are supposed to beat the path for everybody else. And that, and that seems to be one of the things that um, when we talk about the, the different experiences that people have had, whether it's good, bad, or, or indifferent, um, is, is just being honest about that. Uh, firstly with ourselves and then with everybody else, because that's that's how we make the change. Um, the cynical side of me says that there's always going to be some form of left or right wing reactionary towards of uh, towards that. But I think I think those of us that are less reactionary or, or want to come more from a, a truth seeker or a, a science base is we put the information out there as best we can and um, that then there's a level of personal responsibility to act on that. So that what the, the example Scott just gave where was that, that business leader making the decision to, to actually keep it a secret when, when maybe that's actually one of the things that they shouldn't do. So should that person be challenged on that? Um, just, you know, because one of the things that's come out and um, from the, the companies that I've been involved with and, and, and people in my family is the overwhelming evidence that working from home for a lot of people is of tremendous benefit because it's put a lot of money back in their pocket. It's time back with their family and, and all the rest of it. So why why would any, where, where is the incentive to change that and why can't we just be honest about that type of conversation? Um, yeah, so... I'm sure I have more to add to that, but I've fizzled out again. I guess the question <laughs> I'd ask on it too is like, if you look at some of the celebrities who have started off doing social media about, you know, we're having a really nice life here as a family in our second home in um, Somerset, who dropped percentage points in terms of their popularity immediately and came under massive criticism, which was you're very privileged and you're kind of rubbing it in the face. It's like, how, how do you handle privilege and does the notion of privilege become far sharper in a situation like a pandemic um, in terms of how people see it? Well, it's actually a case of privilege because if somebody's um, worked hard and achieved achieved that through graft and knuckling down education or hard work or whatever that is, how is that privilege if it's somebody that's if it's something that's taken blood, sweat, sweat and tears to acquire and, and why should you hide that? But is, is that something to be ashamed of? Or is it just about being smarter in how you actually put the message across and saying that we understand that this is other people are suffering rather than, unless it's a more narcissistic, look at me, look at me, look at me scenario. Um, I think I think there's ways to have that conversation because there are people out, out there that will have done incredibly well and I don't think they should be ashamed of that. I think because that's still a testament to this is what you can achieve if you knuckle down and 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 believe in something. So um, yeah, so I think I think I think there's a lot about context around that and how they actually landed their message. And it, it may be it may well be that they deserved a good smack on the back of the head um, for for the, how they put that message out there. But you know, um, but there will be out pe people out there that have worked hard that should not be ashamed and shouldn't be ridiculed for their efforts. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the things that um, I read quite early on was a, an article and it mentioned in it how everybody's rolling the same storm 
but we're all in different boats. So some people are in the COVID storm in a yacht and other people might feel like they're in an open canoe. And although we're all in the same storm, we're impacted or protected in different ways and to different extents. I think part of coming out of this is actually giving ourselves permission to do things differently and giving ourselves permission to celebrate the positive things that have actually come out of it. Um, I suppose it's maybe getting the balance and the context in terms of even people in leadership positions that are, you know, running organisations and actually wanting to, you know, they maybe feel a bit ashamed that they've actually enjoyed being able to work from home during this time um, and spend more time with the family. And I wonder how much of it is um, to do with our mindsets in terms of what people expect of us and how that actually has maybe shifted during this last year. Like my husband now is working from home on a full-time basis. Um, in some ways it's been challenging because we're in each other's space the whole time. In other ways, in the majority of ways, it's been incredible. We've loved it. We've got a new baby. We get to like in between calls, he pops out for a cuddle and um, you know, I feel like you know, hold the baby so I can go to the toilet. And um, it's felt like much more of a team dynamic for us as a family. And it's how we go forward out of this now. I think in terms of it was interesting what you were saying, Jimmy, in terms of actually um just being able to equip young people and equip children. I think for everybody. It's if we can equip each other with like a robust toolkit of, do you know what? Life is really hard at points. We are going to lose people and we are going to have to say goodbye. And that's really hard. It's so challenging. But I think it's then creating, how do we create a toolkit where we have space to actually go on a grieving journey? Um, I literally read an article this morning that was talking about how um, normally you would grieve collectively as a community you go to a funeral you hug each other you you recognize those others that are with you in mourning um and that's been taken away in terms of we're not allowed to hug each other or you know I, you know we can't hug our families um and so I don't think Jim you'd mentioned you know do we deprioritize funding for mental health in order to prioritize you know the physical helping people to breathe through COVID. And it's a really delicate one because I think for each person who loses their life in COVID, they're then leaving behind a network of friends and family and people whose mental health are probably gonna be significantly impacted by the loss of that person in their, in their life. And so I don't, th it's so hard. I don't think we can choose. I think mental health has to be a, a priority going forward um, for those of us that are, that are you know still here it's an interesting point that Lindsay's made but what you've just described described is that not something that applies to anybody that's suffering from any kind of disease that then then passes away that's not so that that's something that we've been dealing with for well <laughs> since, since there's been life and death so i don't understand why from a covid perspective that would be any different it doesn't matter whether it's COVID or a cancer or or a, a, a road accident or whatever. They still have to go through that grieving process. So I don't I don't know why um, we would need any special rules as such for for COVID as such, um, because that that process is the same across all of these things. Yes, I, I do appreciate what you mean. Um, what I was meaning more was normally when we go through a grieving process there's various support networks and systems in place 
that we can normally access and those are the things that have been stripped away because of covid so you know for example when my grand passed away i couldn't go to the funeral i couldn't be with my family we weren't allowed to hug each other they couldn't meet afterwards and celebrate her life um in an afternoon in the pub because they had to do flasks in a car park socially distancing with you know my granny's fruit loaf recipe passed around from car boot to car boot um so it's these kind of things i think going forward we've not been able to grieve in the same way because of all the restrictions so it's not that covid's made things um harder or more difficult in terms of the loss it's made it different in how we actually can process that and the toolkit that's available to us the network of support I think it's brought it into sharper relief hasn't it it's brought has brought privilege into sharper relief it's brought your relationship to science into sharper relief or faith or um you know a, a lot of things have now been exposed in terms of their uh, what they are in a sharper way because people were dying and and, um, and and people had different experiences of COVID. I wonder if that's what's happened. Nothing's really changed in terms of capitalism and how things normally spread themselves out. But what's happened is as a whole world, we've started to focus in on it. And the question becomes is how do we now talk about it? How do we engage? And, and, and what do we need to kind of be in mind having heard the last hour and quarters conversation? What, what do we need to be in mind as we engage with each other about this? I think, Jim, what, 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 one thing that's crossed my mind is that, you know, how do we talk about what do you do is, is, uh, is finding a way, even just on the discussion, you know, the, the amount of exposure, gold, experiences and everything that's on the table today, just in this one hour chat, is finding out how do we get that together and get that out there? Because, you know, I remember... Uh, as a, a young man visiting the, the Amaran Indians living with the bone arrow in the jungle of Guyana and they had a cure for everything and I laugh I laugh when people say oh we've not had enough research on this and research on this drug these guys said if you got bitten with a snake they could cure you in a day they had a cure for everything so when I got to the Strathclyde University and spoke to the professor of medicine and I asked him you know, where do you get all your research and ideas? And he says, well, don't tell anybody, which I'm now. He says, but once a year I go to the Amazon jungle and I come back with a stack load of leaves and branches because there's a cure in every one. And uh, he said, that's where I do get all my information from. And I was freaked out because I thought, when the Amarindians told me, I thought, oh, right, you could cure a snake and you could cure this. But here was the professor at Glasgow Strathclyde University confirming it. And I said, is that not illegal? He said, of course it's illegal, but from Glasgow. And he was like, since when did anybody in Glasgow obey the law? But, uh, but it was fascinating and it was a rich moment, you know, <clears throat> and I'm laughing at all this research and everything. The Hammer Indians know more than all the scientists on the planet. And so I'm, I'm seeing that whole thing to say, and that's it's a simple answer to the question, Jim, but I think that the richness of experiences on here and wisdom and the place, if, if there's any way of getting that together in, in a bottle and getting it out there for everybody to get a wee drink, that's just my simple... Uh, I drink it, Jimmy. I drink it. Um, and I think that's the thing, is that just the, 
even just listening to all of these conversations, I feel a sense of relief and that we're having the conversation. And I didn't realize the, the, the multiple layers and I'm like, oh, I haven't been talking about that. I haven't been thinking about this. And I think more than anything, you know, to, you know, to our, our fellow Amaran Indians, we've forgotten a lot more than we've remembered. And perhaps this gives us all of this shines a light on an opportunity to remember that which we have forgotten, whether it is our, our neighborly love for one another, um, that it is that there are only two emotions, love and fear. And if we can tap into more of the love rather than the fear, then how about we do more of that? Um, and more than anything, I think that this time that we've had together from a very selfish notion, gives us an opportunity to know that these conversations are important. And so I say a massive thank you from our, I'm going to say our hearts, um, for you guys to take the time to have this conversation. And that a general hope and intention of this is like, let's see what this can do. Let's see what this can bottle. And let's keep having conversations because they really matter. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you too. Thank you. Thank you.